Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, are our banks healthy enough to cope with the economic shock that's still to come? How they're already rebranding? Plus, how could James Packer forget? Thanks for your company on the Money Minutes. And as I explained in our budget episode, the throttle right now is way open on the Australian economy. Interest rates are close to zero. The government's spending hundreds of billions of dollars trying to stave off an economic oblivion. And there are signs that it's working. The stock market, always a happy recipient of taxpayer dollars in the economy, well, it's flying along. And even the housing market, apart from Victoria so far, well, it's showing not just signs of resilience, but in some key areas, growth as well. Now, all that is exactly what is intended. The ongoing problem for Australia is employment. Consider that the government collects around half its revenue from PAYE taxpayers. If unemployment is higher, it's not just not receiving the money from a larger proportion of the population. Indeed, it's paying those very people via either the JobKeeper or JobSeeker programs. And that's why the budget, indeed every government economic statement right now, is all about jobs, jobs, jobs. But look, as I continue to point out, the real problem is in the future, when the government or Reserve Bank decide to pare back on the support to ease up on the yawning debt the government's accruing. Gross debt, remember, has tipped the peak around $1.7 trillion. Now, the total stock market here in Australia, by way of reference, has a value around $2 trillion. Because the real problem is the attitude of the banks to the persistent unemployment and even business failures that are to come, having been excoriated by the Royal Commission for putting profits ahead of customers, the banks now have the difficult task of managing loss and bad debts, effectively selling people and businesses up because they can no longer pay their debts. Yet somehow, the banks have got to try and not look greedy while they're doing that. Now today, I'll speak with Senior Australian Banking Analyst from S&P Global Ratings. Now, he'll tell you that banks have to prepare themselves on a, on a mid-case basis, not even a worst-case basis, that could wipe an entire year of profits. That's around $30 billion out across the big banks and also Macquarie. So that's potentially a lot of businesses wound up or houses being sold up under people. Try doing that and maintaining a soft, friendly, post-Royal Commission face. Well, this week at the country's largest bank, the Commonwealth, the person in charge of maintaining that happy vibe is the Chief Marketing Officer, Monique McLeod, who said this as she launched a new logo, an ad campaign for the Commonwealth this week. If you think about uh, some of the issues that we've had and the challenges reputationally and how we've needed to earn back customers' trust, then uh, what's been so critical is that, uh, you know, it's about deeds and the actions that we take and how we show up, uh, the experience that we provide. And so really leaning into that has been incredibly important. And I think we're starting to see that customers can, can really see that we've got a great role to play in actually helping uh, through these times. So for us, it is very much about deeds, uh, you know, and actions, not just words. It's all remorseful, sincere and understanding. And that obviously for Monique is going to be a tough gig once the foreclosures start, as foreshadowed by the likes of Standard & Poor's. Now about its branding, the Commonwealth changed its logo as well. It got rid of most of the black in its recognisable black and yellow livery, kind of, I guess, like ripping out its black heart if you want to be dramatic. Here's a new ad that goes along with that. It's about how inspiring and helpful the Commonwealth can be. After the dust has settled, after the sun has set, and the kids have gone to bed, where you break yourself before you break a promise, 
and knowing that even the smallest things can lead to something big. It lives in every square inch of this place. And because we live here, Can lives here. Now note there the word can, it's big at the Commonwealth. But if it was me and I was the Commonwealth Bank trying to get people, well, to like me a bit more, and I wanted to use that word can, I reckon I'd have gone for something, well, a bit more fun, a bit more upbeat, a bit more, well, like this. So that's more like it. People really like a can-can. Well, a can-can bank. Anyway, let's move on. I want to bring into this conversation Sherrod Jane, who is the director at S&P Global Ratings. Now, as you're aware, S&P are going to be very important in terms of its analysis of not only our national economy, but also then individual sectors and the banking sector being first and foremost among those. And so the analysis that Sherrod has done today basically says that banks will struggle to regain many of their earnings metrics even as their credit losses start to wane. But they also say that they don't necessarily see that, say, loan deferrals that are out there right now will end up with the banks seeing the massive losses that some predict. Let's bring Sherrod Jane in right now. Many thanks for your time, Sherrod. Hi, Lord. I'm Jack of you. Just one thing. You say that the recovery for Australia's banks is going to be a drawn-out affair. Just explain the sequence that you think as the coronavirus and the economic downturn takes hold. What's the sequence that you foreshadow in this report today? Yeah, hi, Ross. Uh, glad to be here. What we think is going to happen is there will be a rise in credit losses that will be suffered by most of the banks. The rise in credit losses will take place because number of individuals are going to lose their income by way of losing their jobs. And number of businesses will also suffer some distress. Now, these, this rise in trade losses will become more pronounced, in our opinion, sometime mid to late next year. And that delay will come around because for the time being and for some time going forward, the support from the government and the deferrals extended by the banks will help them then cushion the, the rise in credit losses. So this rise in credit losses, as well as depression in the income of the banks from other sources like interest income or fee income, will therefore compress the earnings most prominently in next year. And then we'll start to see some recovery by way of improvement in the lending activity, improvement in fee income, as well as easing of credit losses. Okay, so what you say, though, is that the banks, with their capital reserves in reasonably strong positions now, that they should be able to withstand not only the the bad and doubtful debts that will emerge from households uh, who clearly are going to lose out of housing and also businesses that will lose as a result of uh, insolvency, 
but you also then say that their their current earnings and profitability they may be they may be lower, but they're still strong enough to make certain they can withstand these capital losses elsewhere in their in their business. Yes, no, and that that's a very important point that uh, we expect the banks will be able to absorb these losses pretty much within their earnings, so there will be no impact on the capital as such. The capital impact will only come if the banks start to show losses because their profits or earnings aren't enough to absorb these rising trade losses. That's not what we expect. We expect in our base case that uh, the uh, earnings will remain sufficient, more than sufficient, to absorb this rising bad and down food debt and still leave significant buffer for a further rise even beyond our base case expectations for these losses to be absorbed during the earnings. So uh, to answer your question, no, we do not expect an impact on capital. Okay, so what you're saying at the moment is if you have a look at the number of home loans that are deferred, which is about uh, $160 billion worth of home loans deferred, another $69 billion worth of small and medium enterprise loans, small business loans that are deferred, your, your medium severity case, I know you've got a high end and a low end case scenario, basically says that of those loans that are currently deferred, you believe that 30% of them could go into default and then about half of those, so 15% on housing, could end up seeing a loss potentially to the bank or indeed that there's not enough capital or equity to actually cover that loan. So you're saying the credit loss could be $7 billion there. In business, in that medium case scenario, it's worse because you're saying 30% will go into default, but then 40% of the loans could lead to some form of a, of a loss leading to about $8.3 billion of losses to the banks that they would have to wear. So in other words, what you're already saying is that there are losses coming to the banks as a result of the insolvency in both the household sector, but also the business sector as well. Yeah, look... Uh the difference is a slightly complex area in the sense that we as outsiders have limited information. So the table you are referring to is very much a scenario analysis based on hypothetical set of assumptions. Indeed, in our medium severity set of assumptions, we do expect the trade losses to increase by 15.5 billion just out of the deferral. I think the key point we are trying to make from there is that if you go to the highest severity uh, scenario, the losses out of the deferred loan will be about 1.2% of gross loan. Now that is a high number, particularly when you compare to what the bank incurred about 13 basis points in 2019, but it's not too far off what we are forecasting over the next two years from the entire loan portfolio, not just the deferred loan, the entire loan portfolio. So, so this, this table is just a scenario analysis saying that the headline number of uh, uh, 8 to 10% uh, deferred loan, that, that does seem a bit high. And sometimes the, the investors or other stakeholders do consider that that, that to be quite, quite worrisome feature. You're saying, well, the banks obviously have lots more granular information on that, and we expect that they will be making provisions accordingly. But based on a simple set of assumptions, we do not see the losses coming out of these different loans to be uh, too alarming. 
Right. So in other words, notwithstanding, because I'm looking at that, you know, worst case scenario or the high severity case scenario you've got with the total credit losses of $33 billion or so, which pretty much represents almost the, the entire annual earnings of the big four banks. It's not too far away from, from that level. So it would be, you know, a bit of a shock. And as you say, they've got the reserves, they've got the profitability. The mid case at about $15.5 billion, uh, is probably a little under half of the earnings that uh, the big four banks would produce on an annual basis. Uh, and so this gives people some sort of relative scale as to these various scenarios that may come as a result of defaults that could happen in either the business sector or in the housing sector as well. That, that's right. So you, you, you can, because uh, we do not have more in-depth information on this deferred loan, but based on the scenario one is more comfortable with, they can get some sense of the idea what kind of losses they could expect. Uh, we still expect overall losses to be about 120 basis points over the next two years, which is in line with a table further down in the commentary that we uh, added that table to. And one of the assumptions that you have made to, to arrive at those bad and doubtful debts is about uh, national house prices in Australia. And that is you believe that they will fall about 10% from the peak in April, May 2020, uh, down to uh, uh, around about a, a 10% fall from there. You say they've already slidden about 3%, Melbourne showing a 5% fall. But largely, that is where, and that is the reason why, many of those bad and doubtful debts may emerge in the future, especially if companies either go broke and or people lose their job as a consequence. Yeah, look, it's, it's hard to categorically link it just to the house price fall. That house price fall is something we see more as an outcome rather than a key driver, especially if you look at, you know, go back to say mid-2019 to late 2019 the house prices actually increased by about 10% from then until April-May. So if you take off the same gain, then that in itself should not represent a significant additional risk. Where we are saying the losses will come primarily out of would be the job losses or the businesses going into insolvency or businesses getting into otherwise distress. That's 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 where we consider the losses will primarily come out of. And then sure in some of those cases the drop in property prices will add to the, the severity of those losses. Okay, now because of the reserves and because of the relative strength of Australian banks, you actually said you believe they should be able to preserve their creditworthiness in the next two years. But then you go on a little bit later and say that you believe there will be a, a negative outlook for the five larger banks. So in other words, the Commonwealth, Westpac, uh, the ANZ, uh, the National Australia Bank and Macquarie is there as well. And the reason, though, you say there could be a negative outlook on these five larger organisations is not necessarily because of what's happening inside them, but what's happening with the Australian government and what could be the, the sovereign risk or the sovereign ratings that obviously, therefore, consequently apply to those banks as well. That's right. So we do have, just, just to make it clear, we do have a negative outlook on these five banks. So it's not, not that we could have. We already have a negative outlook. And we could lower our rating or we expect to lower our rating on these five banks if we lower the ratings on the sovereign. And as you and your listeners would be aware, that our sovereign rating is already on negative outlook. 
So the other part about this also is there has been the second outbreak of COVID in Victoria. Now, we understand that that really, if you like, amplifies the potential risks in the future. And this is the reason why containment is so important right now. And so this is a here and now uh, forecast of the Australian economy, future outbreaks, any other economic shocks that might come as a consequence, that clearly is also going to be something that's going to be taken into account, not only for the ratings of the banks, but also the rating for the sovereign debt, the the, the government, if you like. Yeah, so, so absolutely. That, uh, you know, we, 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 of course, acknowledge that there is high degree of uncertainty about the evolution of uh, the pandemic. Um, you know, the outcomes, the vaccine, uh, the second wave, etc. Those are the key unknowns and key risks on the downside. So just the other part about... Uh, the... I think what... what, what... Sure. So, sorry, if I could add, what I would say is that uh, I do believe that uh, there is headroom in pretty much all our bank ratings for a moderate downturn or additional downturn to our base case at the moment. So even if the downturn is a bit longer or a bit more severe than what we are currently expecting, we consider that the bank rating should still remain unchanged. And we should make one other observation for the national scenario, but it does go very much back to the banks, is in previous economic downturns, if there was a credit squeeze, if there was not the availability of the credit either from the banks or to the banks, we know that, say, for example, after 2007, 2008, many Australian banks had difficulty accessing international finance at a, at a reasonable price. And that did, you know, at that time cause problems, almost a bit of a credit squeeze. But right now, what you're saying is what the Reserve Bank in particular is doing, uh, providing funding, uh, the term funding facility to the domestic banks, that really is keeping the money inside the banks and inside our economy. And to a certain extent, that probably is providing a cushion, not just to the banks and their earnings, uh, and therefore their strength, but also to the Australian economy overall. So the central bank support certainly does help the funding and liquidity. So that's, you have to be right in 2008 and 2009. That was one of the key concerns, whether the banks will be able to continue to access the capital markets to fund themselves. And that, that's something that uh, the Reserve Bank early decisive action significantly or comprehensively alleviated those risks. Uh, so now, uh, obviously, one of the other objectives that the central bank has in extending these facilities is to try and encourage the trade growth. Whether that trade growth takes place as a consequence of this or not, we are a bit circumspect. We consider that what it would take, I think it would certainly help that the banks have access to this liquidity and funding, and then the banks have, are able to then extend loans to their borrowers at low interest. What would also be required for a credit growth to take place is a recovery of confidence amongst the businesses and households. So we consider that currently this, this uh, policy measure by the central bank or the other policy measures for the government, all of these should help. But what we would need to see in addition is improvement in business and household sentiment, which can possibly come about as a result of these policy measures. So hence, Sharon, 
that comes back to even the budget, the amount of stimulus, uh, uh, fiscal stimulus, money that the government has put into the economy, uh, and the question that remains to be answered, that won't be answered maybe for six or 12 months, is whether it's had the desired impact of prompting spending and Im- Im- improving confidence and sentiment, because these are keys, as you say, to not only businesses seeking finance from banks, um, but also then for maybe asset prices not to fall as dramatically as what otherwise uh, otherwise might be the case if, if things remain subdued. Yes, absolutely. The policy measures seem to be geared towards improving the sentiment, um, improving the spending. Um, we would need to wait and see to, to what the reasons are successful and, and over what time frame. Our best case does remain that there will be an economic recovery that, that will begin by the end of this year. And, and we do expect significant economic growth starting next year uh, from rebound. We do expect to see credit growth also coming by in, in another year's time. Sherrod Jane is the director at S&P Global Ratings. And as you can hear there, there are losses coming for our banks, but they're strong enough to be able to sustain that. And Sherrod, I appreciate your time here with me today. Thanks, Bob. Apologies, I do know the audio at times were a little ropey in that interview. We're still experimenting with the best phone or digital lines to use with our podcast here. Now, look, as I go today, I just want to spend a quick moment on the New South Wales Liquor and Gaming Inquiry into Crown and the testimony of its directors, most especially of James Packer. I think this has been a terribly painful and terribly shocking experience for the board as it has been for me. Now, it's important to state that a person's mental health is always important to consider in any of these matters. James Packer's mental health is as important as anybody else's. But what seemed clear to me for quite some time is that James Packer, like his uncle Clyde Packer many, many years ago, is happy to walk away from Australia to live permanently in the United States, a quieter life, a more private life. That means walking away from Crown and to become a thoroughly private person again. To me, that seems to be James Packer's ambition. What he craves, but while he has that investment in Crown, is something that is actually opposite. He can't achieve it. Next, many of the problems that James Packer has today are completely of his own making. And finally, the piece of evidence to the inquiry that I simply couldn't fathom was where he indicated that he did not consider or forgot the bans on Lawrence Ho's father, Stanley Ho, and indeed the Ho family company, Melco, when he agreed to sell out half his stake in Crown to them in May 2018. Now, the reason I can't fathom him forgetting this is on that same day, May 2018, when it was announced, this was my report on Nine News on that exact same day. Seen out walking in Los Angeles just hours before the deal was announced, Packer's sale, almost 20% of Crown Resorts, leaves him with 26% and a representative on the board. And this is one of the brightest jewels in that crown, the $2.2 billion Barangaroo Casino right on the shores of Sydney Harbour. It's due to be completed in two years' time and is one of the key reasons why many international investors want to buy James Packer out. The buyer, Melco, is run by another prince, Lawrence Ho, Packer's former partner in Macau. He's the son of 97-year-old Stanley Ho, the godfather of Macau's casino strip. He has some of the greatest assets globally. Mm. You know, they're clearly the premium assets in Australia, but even from a world standard, they are, they are f- f- phenomenal. 
Stanley is specifically named in Crown's New South Wales gaming licence. He and his associates are barred from having any interest in the casino because of alleged past links to organised crime. Because you see, it took me around, well, 15 or 20 minutes to remember, then to extract Crown's publicly available New South Wales gaming licence and then to subsequently report on it. So if I could remember and I wasn't selling $1.76 billion worth of shares being advised by the best legal minds and the best investment bankers in the country. Well, I think you should get my point. Anyway, that's it for the Money Minutes for this episode. Thanks for taking the time to listen. You can give us your feedback via your podcast app on Apple, Google, Spotify, now Amazon, or otherwise, of course, via social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood. And these are the Money Minutes. Let's have a bit more can-can.